This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. What if I told you you could get a big snack almost anywhere for less than five bucks? Let's talk 7-Eleven's $3 big meal deal with seven rewards. Big meal deal is a big bite hot dog and a large big gulp drink, and you won't find a better snack deal anywhere else. Here's what I put on my hot dog. Mustard. And that's it. That's it. I love a hot dog with mustard. Maybe if the chili, if I'm feeling it, if I'm feeling crazy, maybe a little chili, maybe a little nacho cheese, but I'm a hot dog and mustard guy. But if that sounds like your kind of bite, visit 7-Eleven, valid through 1725. 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, applicable on large Big Gulp only. Participating U.S. stores only. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today is Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Howdy. And Ringer staff writer and certified Williams Astadio hater Ben Mr. Chalk Lindbergh. Say hello, Ben. Hello, guys. We have baseball this week, sort of, um, for the time being, I guess. Uh, so this is uh, what I think was was actually a really exciting first couple days of action has been uh, at least should have been dominated in the in the news by the fact that we have a coronavirus outbreak on the Miami Marlins. That didn't take long, Zach. No, and I think it's not the best omen for the rest of the season. As you say, we have baseball for now, and we will talk, I'm sure, at length about whether the baseball should continue. But even if it does, I think the fact that we lasted all of three days of the season before there was an outbreak is not a great omen for how the rest of the next three months might go. Even in this age of, of very heavy-handed uh, heavy handed omens, this is, uh, this is up there. Is, you know, I, Rob Manfred said, I actually don't disagree with him that we were going to get positive tests at some point, just that such was the, the nature of the, the model for the season. But even uh, a habitual pessimist like myself, I, I didn't imagine it would be this severe this quickly. Yeah, and MLB has been trying to spin this in the most positive way possible, and they've essentially said, well, this isn't surprising. We expected this to happen, which in a way, really, if you expected there to be outbreaks big enough to take out half a team at one time, then maybe you shouldn't have even proceeded with the season in the first place. I'd almost feel more charitable toward them if they had convinced themselves that this wouldn't happen, that they could stop this. So evidently, they were banking on this happening and still went ahead with it. And the question is, can they prevent it in the future? And Dodgers president Stan Kasten came out and sort of spun this as a learning experience. And hey, it happened early and now we can learn from this and prevent it from happening again. But I think there's a lot of uncertainty about whether the fact that this came so early means that, okay, we got this out of the way and now we can revamp our protocols and we can change our behavior and we can prevent it from happening again or just, well, it took a few days for this to happen and it's going to keep happening until every other team has caught the coronavirus and is uh, maybe temporarily resistant to it. So I think really it comes down to, well, how did they get it? And we don't know right now how this outbreak started. And in a way, we might never know, you know, whether it was something to do with the players not adhering to the protocols or just the fact that there's coronavirus everywhere and the Marlins are playing in a hot spot, although they weren't in one when they contracted the infection. Well, we don't know that. This is part of the problem. That Probably the not. Yeah, we, we period is so long. 
Right. They hadn't yet come home to play and, and they had tested negative throughout summer camp. But again, yes, we don't know exactly when this happened or how this happened. And you can't know. You can't completely prevent any possible vector for this. So if they're looking at it and saying, well, we're serious now about these protocols, you know, we were high-fiving before, but now we're really not going to high-five, which, uh, by the way, it seems like people are still kind of congregating and high-fiving. But if the only plan is like, okay, now we'll actually stick to the measures that we were supposed to be sticking to before, that doesn't seem all that encouraging. And it seems like there's every likelihood that this could keep happening. And look how disruptive it's been. We have one team that has to take this whole week off. And if anything, maybe to be responsible should probably be taking even longer off. And then that side, that sort of sidetracks a handful of other teams because their opponents can't play or they have to reschedule other teams so that they can keep playing some games in the interim. And again, that's just with one team having a big outbreak. So if you have multiple teams with clusters at the same time, I'm not sure how you could continue. Because Ben seems to have taken the fact that I emailed him a rundown for today's show as an invitation to read the entire rundown right <laughs> off the top, um, I'm, we're going to backtrack a little bit and sort of take this point by point and then get into those issues. Because, yeah, Ben, what you raised about, did they expect this? What what does this mean going forward? What did they learn? It, did they actually learn anything? These are, I mean, there are almost no other issues, which considering some of the other stuff that Croc cropped up this weekend like i don't like saying that but without if they don't solve this problem then nothing else really matters so let's just go through a quick timeline we'll sort of take these uh the effects point by point so marlins braves played an exhibition game last wednesday uh before the season started tyler flowers and travis darno the braves two catchers were yanked from the lineup after showing symptoms uh for opening day my condolences to to ben on tyler flowers getting sick um and by Sunday, after the Marlins have played two games against the Phillies, four Marlins players test positive, including Jose Urania, the, the scheduled starting pitcher. They scratch those players uh, on Sunday uh, and decide to quarantine those players in a hotel in Philadelphia. By Tuesday, as testing numbers continue to, to roll in, that number's up to 15 players plus two others in the traveling party. As of recording uh, late Wednesday morning, we don't have any more information about further test numbers from the Marlins or uh, or from the Phillies. So the Marlins remain quarantined in Philadelphia. Phillies and Yankees have uh, postponed their series or canceled their series, as have Marlins and Orioles, this midweek series. You know, when I was saying during the Gabe Kapler era that I didn't care if the Phillies never played again, this is not what I had in mind. Um, the Marlins National Series this weekend uh, is also... Um, on, it's also on ice after the Nationals took a, a team vote not to travel to to Miami, um, and so that's been replaced by two game Yankees Orioles series. So, and, and like the vote element is also interesting because the Marlins, after those four positive tests, went ahead after a team vote to to play, and that's ruffled some feathers uh, um, among players on the on the Phillies. So this is all this this brings up. Let's start here. The first issue with MLB's testing and safety protocols is that a lot of it seems to be based on a rap a lot of or a lot of the uh the the virus mitigation strategy seems to be based on a rapid testing uh procedure that might just not be practicable not just because of the logistical hurdles of, of testing but because of the nature of the virus and so the incubation period is at least two to three days, which means you can be exposed, you can play, you can travel even and not test positive until you until uh uh, several days have gone past. And so the idea of testing people who have been exposed in the morning and letting them play in the afternoon, that might just not be scientifically feasible. Um, so, Zach, you know, what are the the implications? Of that? I think the implications are, as you say, there can be a lot of sort of chain infections without realizing it. the Marlins. Uh, they quarantined the players who had tested positive, but that didn't prevent half the team from getting infected before that quarantining could happen. And I think the the difficulty is baseball is a sport that plays every single day, even more this year. There are fewer off days than ever before because they're trying to cram 60 games into 66 days after, you know, delaying because the owners wanted to limit the number of games this season in the financial negotiations with the players. Uh, so I think what you're seeing already this week before the season is even a week old 
is there are real difficulties with postponing games and you're getting questions about first from a logistical standpoint like what does this mean for the standings at the end of the season if we get this far are we going to have every team playing the same number of games and that's one level of consideration but there's a primary level of consideration which is are people going to get sick in the meantime and i think that's obviously a more important consideration but it's kind of an impossible situation that mlb is in it's not like football or basketball or uh these other sports where you have days off between games so if you know you get infected on a monday morning and maybe test positive by wednesday you might not play a game in that interim and baseball you're playing two or three games in that span yeah and this brings up you know you mentioned what's within mlb's control i think there's plenty of blame to go around but they're playing under conditions that it might just not be possible and this is what i keep coming back to this is this plan is premised on the idea that it's possible to play professional team sports in the united states right now without a bubble and i just don't really know if that's true. Yeah, and I don't know whether the bubble was feasible for MLB in that sense. It's, oh, I would I say it a, wasn't. Just to yeah, yeah right it's a, it's a it's a bigger lift for baseball than for the other sports. I, I think in a lot of ways, baseball kind of had a, a harder time of it. Was dealt a worse hand just because of the timing with its season starting and players not having been paid yet, compared to other sports where most of their regular seasons were completed and most of that salary was already paid. So again, MLB didn't do well and didn't cope well with those circumstances, but. But I think it, it was a more difficult circumstance. And just because there are so many players in baseball and so many people associated with a team and in a team's orbit, it just wasn't really feasible for that bubble plan to happen or even a, a three bubble plan, which was discussed at some point in the lead up to the season. It's just a lot harder to do for baseball. And so baseball could have said, well, we can't do that, so we shouldn't do anything. And instead they say, well, we'll do the best that we can do, which is clearly not great. And I think baseball also, if you look at it on the field or the court, baseball might be the sport best suited for this because you're not really having player-on-player -player contact. But within just a single team, you're having players travel together on planes and spend time together in clubhouses and spend time in hotels. We saw a report earlier this week that teams are concerned because there are like large weddings happening in the same hotels they're staying at. So I think there's just a lot of there's a lot of opportunity for the virus to spread quickly within a group of 30 different players where if any one of them gets infected, that's going to run through half the team pretty quickly. Yeah. And the hotel point is, is a huge thing. Cause you look at that in contrast to what the NHL is doing with its bubbles They're They've got bubbles in Toronto and Edmonton where they're, they've rented out entire hotels and that's where the teams are staying. And from what we're led to believe the players are under locked, you know, under, uh, under lock and key, like like they're in a, a Cold War embassy behind the Iron Curtain or something like that. And if you've got you know people doing the Cupid Shuffle in the ballroom while the the Marlins and Phillies are coming in and out of their hotel, like that just it's another it's another risk. And I said this when uh, when the Nationals went ahead and played on opening day after Juan Soto tested positive that any one individual risk is that MLB takes is probably going to be pretty small, that the likelihood is everything will probably be okay if they do take this one risk. But if you take dozens or hundreds or thousands of individual chances, those, those will not only add up, but, but compound each other. Um, and so just to, to get back to the, the delay, I think this, this feeds into, uh, you know, MLB is publishing its its testing numbers and they're saying we have X number of positive cases or you know, X percentage. But what they're doing is they're they're using the the total number of tests as the denominator rather than the number of players. Um, and they're also working on a delay. Like, I think what we're what we're seeing here is a micro version of something. When I uh, talked to a couple epidemiologists about this, one of them, Abdul Al-Sayed, said, I'll read the quote. Everything we see today is information about the dynamics of the virus two weeks ago. And I think, and he was talking obviously about a broad national or societal level, but within Major League Baseball, we're working on on information that isn't good anymore. That's just by the nature of of the testing delay, which in the which is hours in the very very best case scenario, the delay in the incubation period. We're working on information that's could be up to a week old. And it's it's just hard to make smart decisions based on on that time lag. 
Yeah. And I think as MLB has put out press releases that have kind of crowed about the fact that no one on other teams has tested positive recently, I think since Friday, right? Which is better than the alternative, obviously, but still isn't a guarantee of anything because there could be players who have already contracted it on other teams, but they just haven't tested positive yet because of that incubation period. So you can't really declare victory and say, oh, this is just limited to the Marlins based on that. And when you have one team that has been just taken out almost entirely by this thing, then it's hard to feel very good about other teams escaping that same fate in the meantime. And a lot of these questions came up in summer camp when guys would test positive or the samples wouldn't get where they needed to go and they didn't have the the results in time. And so they had to cancel practices. And people said, well, what will happen if this occurs again in season? And no one really seemed to have an answer for that. And it didn't seem like MLB really ever developed an answer for that. And so we ended up with this situation where multiple Marlins had tested positive and yet they decided to play anyway. And it really was their decision. Apparently, the players took a vote. Don Mattingly said they never considered not playing and they just went out there and risked perhaps the the Phillies who they were playing on that day or, or themselves. And the same thing sort of happened with the Nationals when it came down to whether they would be willing to go to Miami and play. The Nationals took a vote and said no. And that sort of forced MLB. B's hand, if the Nationals had said, yeah, we're willing to go, I don't know that that would have happened because there doesn't really seem to be any independent authority. All the decisions are in the hands of either MLB, who wants the season to proceed, wants to make that playoff money, or the players who have money at stake themselves. And people might say, well, if they're willing to accept that risk, then that's on them and they can decide whether to play or not. But they are potentially jeopardizing other people who didn't make that same decision and didn't really sign up for this. The hotel staff, the travel staff, people in the airport, etc. Yeah, I think there was already a report that even if no opposing Phillies players have tested positive after spending time on the field with the Marlins, there was one visiting clubhouse attendant who tested positive. And for, I think, obvious reasons, we're talking a lot about the athletes and the coaches and everyone inside the most innermost baseball bubble involved, but there are also people on the periphery who will not receive the same attention that Juan Soto would for testing positive. And I think baseball has a moral responsibility to consider those people when they're thinking about sending, you know, dozens of people across the country every couple days uh, in planes and in buses. And that's part of, I think, the broader relationship that MLB has with the country and the coronavirus testing structure is baseball is also having a lot of really rapid response testing with results coming back every day or two. And if you look around the country, you're seeing a lot of people are waiting a week, two weeks to get test results. And I think MLB has claimed repeatedly that it is not straining the system beyond what it can take, but it's hard not to read those stories and think otherwise. At the, at the very, very least, it's bad optically, which I, I was going to say optics used to matter more than actual uh, impact for organizations like this. And uh, maybe that's not true anymore, but or or maybe this this actually is sucking up testing volume. But at the very least, that, like you said, Zach, that assertion looks flimsy. I want to come back to the idea of the players know the risks. Um, you know, in addition to, I think the, as much as I feel like we talk about it constantly, the idea that there are other people who aren't players who aren't making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, uh, who get put at risk because of the, this decision to go ahead. There's, I think a, a really unhealthy reductive libertarian viewpoint that as long as an adult can give conform informed consent to something then it's morally defensible and we don't look nearly enough at the at the structures that um that force people to make those decisions like the the structures that that really impact the calculus and so you know baseball i think baseball players are among the most uh, most protected in terms of, of disease prevention and economically protected workers in the country. But we're looking at, this is essentially a decision. Do you risk your health to go back to work uh, in a pandemic? And we don't, we think more about the individuals making those decisions than the structures that influence the, uh, influence the circumstances under which those decisions get made. And I, I, I don't know what I would do if I were, 
David Price who who opted out, or you know, if I was Sandy Alcantara who didn't opt out and got sick and and is at a completely different point in his career. You know, it's I don't want to speak for anybody else in that situation. That you know, I don't know the the individual uh, pros and cons of playing, but it's not great from an ethical standpoint that people are being put in that situation, even if they are as protected as baseball players seem to be. And I think it makes it difficult really to enjoy the season. I mean, aside from the concerns about anyone's health, everything else sort of seems like a sideshow when this is happening. And like you, I was really enjoying watching the actual baseball and turning on MLB TV on Saturday and Sunday and seeing this full slate of games. It just felt like this wealth of riches after we'd been starved for months and months of baseball. And it was great, but even on opening day, it was like, okay, great, baseball's back. This is fun. Garrett Cole, Max Scherzer. But Juan Soto's not here because he tested positive, and that kind of hangs over everything. And now this Marlins situation is hanging over everything. Even on teams that are not directly affected, it's still difficult to watch this happening and to sort of enjoy the the bread and circuses part of it while trying to forget about what's happening in Miami and hoping that that doesn't happen elsewhere. And I think that's got to be a consideration for MLB. And, and Rob Manfred has commented on this, and he said he doesn't see this as a nightmare scenario. And granted, there could be more nightmarish scenarios than this. But at the beginning of the season, or even before the season started, he asked what would make him think about ending the season. And he said, in the vein of competitive integrity in a 60-game season, if we have a team or two that's really decimated with a number of people who had the virus and can't play for any significant period of time, it could have a real impact on the competition, and we'd have to think very, very hard about what we're doing. And that's where we are, right? We have a team that's been decimated by this. It's having an impact on the conversation, on the competition. And yes, people are making their Marlins jokes about how the Marlins' competitive integrity is compromised under the best of well, circumstances. Took two out of three this weekend, so apparently they're competitive <laughs> enough. But yeah, I mean, you know, you take out half of a, a team's active roster and. Whatever you do, I mean, they've been signing guys left and right who've been cast off by other teams, which has to be weird for those guys. It's like, congratulations, you've got a job. The bad news is it's on the Marlins right now. So come on down. And even if you were to promote players from your taxi squad, I mean, A, you're sort of throwing them into the fire, but also it's just your second string guys, right? It's not the real competitive team that you would put out there. And even if you don't think the Marlins had a chance, the Marlins will be still will still be playing other teams that had a chance and some teams will get to face the injury decimated Marlins and others will get to face the full strength Marlins. And so we're already at that point where competitive integrity is kind of in question. You mentioned Rob Manfred coming out and, and talking about this. We talked about whether there's blame to go around. I think, you know, I think the Marlins players deserve some blame for for going ahead and not really taking this seriously. I think Don Mattingly, the Marlins manager, deserves a little bit of blame for allowing this to happen and also for modeling inconsistent mask use. You see the uh, the yeah. impact of this in the you know, there was the the clip in the, one of the Dodgers games of Bob Guerin with his mask around his chin and then uh pulling it up when when someone told him he was on camera. Um, but MLB is letting the players and teams stand out in front of this and take it. And I just don't, it's whatever else that is, that's just a failure of leadership on, on Rob Manfred's part. And when he did come out and address this, after almost a full day of this dominating the, the news cycle, it was on his house network with a house reporter and he gave canned answers. You know, he talked about not putting this in the, the nightmare category. Like, what is a nightmare category if not for 15 players on one team testing positive? And so I I don't know. I I'm sympathetic to the idea that you don't want to set certain thresholds, particularly when the situation is as fluid as this. But what this is rapidly looking like to me is because we don't have specific thresholds, but because we have health and safety protocols. We're go- MLB is going to try to spin this as it is safe to play because we have these safety protocols without commenting on whether the safety protocols are working or not. Yeah, I think the difficulty with a lack of a threshold or a specific benchmark, a bright red line where you say, if this happens, we shut down for a bit of time means you can continually rationalize playing ball. The KBO, for comparison, in South Korea has come back and they've been back for a couple months now they said if 
there was a single positive test for a player or coach, they would shut the whole league down for three weeks. That hasn't happened yet, but it's a bright red line. Whereas in the majors right now, if, okay, 15 players doesn't cause a shutdown of a wider swath of teams than just that one, then, well, maybe what happens if 20 more players on a different team test positive and 25 on a team after that? Or what if two teams have outbreaks at the same time? It's really easy, kind of like the frog in the boiling pot of water scenario, where if you just turn up the temperature by a degree at a time, then the frog's not going to notice it's boiling uh, you know, until it's too late. And I think that's the difficulty without a threshold that... W- now that the season started, I think it's going to be pretty hard to stop. And I don't know if Manfred or anyone who's in charge has an actual idea in mind of what would force a shutdown. And you know how much I love the the frog and the boiling water metaphor. Um, I just don't know if if you're looking at this from a coldly amoral point of view, I don't know how you look at the American reaction to this is a crisis. We shut this down or we shut our society down for a couple months and we got bored and opened it back up. And now it's just a fact of life that, that, uh, you know, more than a hundred thousand people have died. And this is just something that, that we seem to be willing to tolerate. And there's just incrementally, I, I think if we get through half the Marlins being out, that bar for what actually shuts down the season goes up. And I, I don't know, short of somebody saying we shouldn't do this, this is wrong, which, you know, you could go a long way betting on that not happening in in a, a billion dollar American industry. I just I don't see what the well, that's not right. I don't like thinking about what it would take in order to to shut down a season if we're willing to just play through 15 Marlins players testing positive. Yeah, we've had superstars get sidelined and even experience symptoms. We've had now one team get taken out of action for a whole week. And if that didn't do it, then the thing that would do it has to be bigger than that, right? It has to be multiple teams suffering this or multiple superstars. And some people argue that maybe if this had been a different team than the Marlins, then MLB would have acted differently. But I think we all hope, obviously, that that doesn't get tested, that this is the worst thing that happens, that it's like summer camp where there were a lot of screw-ups on that first holiday weekend, and then things got a little bit more under control with the testing and the sample collection. And those were controlled conditions. Those were teams that were in one place. And now we have travel around the country. And even though it's more restricted travel than we see in a typical season, there's still a lot of variables that just can't be controlled. So even if teams are not breaking the rules and the advisements and are not going out and partying or anything, you still can't completely control the exposures and the possible effect infections. And so this could happen again. So we all hope for the best. Obviously, we've enjoyed the baseball that has been played, and we hope more baseball can continue to be played. But there just isn't a lot of time built into the schedule because they've been on record all along about not wanting to play into November when potentially the risk could be even higher just because of the weather and the temperature. And if that's the case, then you can't actually afford to just slice out weeks for entire teams out of the season and end up with anything resembling a, a real regular season. So unless it's just that, well, we're going to move to using winning percentage and some teams will play 55 games and other teams will play 51 games and whatever, we'll just roll with it. I guess that's one possible outcome here. But I think between the playoff format change at the very last second and these complications that we've already seen arise, I'm having a hard time thinking of this as an authentic season in a way that I was going to attempt to, at least. So I hope that there will not be further issues, but you'd really have to be sort of naive to assume that there won't be. Yeah, we're going to talk about this until the moment the season ends, I imagine, for whatever reason. Um, Zach, do you have any, anything else from the, the, first, uh, the first big, big uh, flare-up? No, I, I just want to say we've had important people uh, in the sport from Manfred to Scott Boris to even national politicians talk about how the return of baseball would herald a, a triumph for a return to normalcy and that it would be a distraction from the virus that the country has been facing for months. And I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago that I didn't think this was going to be a distraction. And if anything, the presence of baseball in our daily lives would only reinforce 
that the virus is still here and still a massive problem. And uh, the first week of the season has proved that claim pretty uh, beyond what I would have expected and certainly hoped for. We're going to be talking about this as, uh, uh, as the season progresses until it ends for whenever it ends. But uh, as we were having this uh, discussion, Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic has reported that yet another Marlins player has tested positive for COVID-19. So that means 16 players and two coaches. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not really sure what, what there is to, to say about that uh, that we haven't said already. So, um Anyway, there has been uh, a lot of baseball played this weekend, a lot of interesting storylines emerging. We're going to talk about that on the other side of this break. Sports are back, and you can find all the action on FanDuel. MLB is here. Whether you've been with FanDuel for a while or you're new to the experience, FanDuel has two great ways to win that you won't want to miss. First, FanDuel is adding $10 in free bets to every account, no deposit required, and no strings attached. And in addition to your $10 bonus, FanDuel is also giving you a day of risk-free betting. That means you can place any bets you want on baseball, basketball, and hockey, and get up to $100 back on your total losses. So what would you want to use your risk-free bets to bet on? Well, let me draw your attention to the new Ringer Odds Boost. Put simply, FanDuel offers more favorable odds on selected bets. For instance, in tonight's Red Sox-Mets game, there's a prop bet on Jacob deGrom to strike out 10 or more batters and the Mets to win, and the odds that are plus 500, but with Odds Boost, that goes to plus 600. And at those odds, one might even be tempted to bet on the Mets. You can see this offer and all the betting lines at sportsbook.fanduel.com or the FanDuel Sportsbook app. If you already have a FanDuel Sportsbook account, then you're all set. Just use your $10 bonus and day of risk-free betting before they expire on August 2nd. And if you've never tried FanDuel Sportsbook, then what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started and be sure to sign up with promo code RINGERMLB so they know we sent you. That's promo code RINGERMLB. 21 and over, present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, West Virginia, and Colorado. Offer ends August 2nd, 2020. $100 max refund issued at site credit and expires in seven days. $10 bonus issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires on August 2nd. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Colorado, 1-800-522-4700. Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. Now back to the Rigger MLB Show. Okay, and we're back and we're going to talk about pitcher injuries. So here's a, a fun, lighthearted uh, topic for us to to dive into. Uh, the heading for this segment is all the good pitchers are hurt, Zach. Unfortunately, uh, we've seen a lot of pitcher injuries earlier on, and I'm not sure if it's related to the fact that there was such a long layoff. And I'm not even sure if it's more than normal. It just might be a kind of confirmation bias where we see one pitcher get hurt and think oh is this a trend and then we see the second pitcher get hurt and so on and so on but so far we have seen justin verlander uh who initial report said would miss the rest of the season he has since come out and said i'm not going to miss the rest of the season but it's a forearm strain which often signifies elbow trouble uh we have seen Corey kluber go down for at least a month we have seen steven strasburg scratch from a start we've seen clayton kershaw stra- scratch from a start and that's just adding to the list of pl- pitchers who we already knew were hurt before the season, like Noah Syndergaard and Chris Sale, Luis Severino. I think just this morning it was announced that Cardinals pitcher Miles Michaelis is going to be out for the rest of the season with arm trouble. So it's a lot. And as somebody who often picks what game he's going to watch on a particular night based on the starting pitching matchup, it's certainly eating into my early enjoyment of the season, just like I think we were supposed to have Kershaw versus Verlander for the first time ever this week. And now both pitchers are hurt. Ben, do you think this is more severe than usual? Or is this like Zach said, confirmation bias and also the com like a, a two month injury is now out for the season. I think right. maybe that's making things look worse than they actually are. Yeah, I'm actually writing about this for TheRinger.com, and so I've been talking to some people who know things about injuries and training, and the consensus among them seems to be that we can't conclusively say that this is related to the strange structure of the season, just because it is a small sample, and it's still a fairly limited number of injuries in the grand scheme of things, and also because we typically see a pitcher injury spike at the start of the season. So generally, that's what you see. You see 
guys in spring training or at the very start of the season suffer a higher than usual rate of injuries because they built up too quickly or because maybe they had some injury that was left over from the previous season that they never addressed and they hoped that the offseason would cure it and it didn't. And then you see another injury spike toward the end of the season as guys start suffering from fatigue. So you would expect to see some sort of spike now. And obviously you look at some of these guys and it's not a shock that Corey Kluber is hurt or that Clayton Kershaw hurt his back. Yet again, it would be more of a surprise if he cut through a season without tweaking his back at this point in his career. But you put it together and it does sort of look like a lot and you can't really rule out the possibility that it is because of the very abbreviated ramp up. I mean, some people I've talked to have told me that in a way this might have benefited certain pitchers just because the season didn't start when it was supposed to. And so some guys just got extra rest, you know, extra months of not having a regular season workload when their ligaments could heal. Other guys, though, had a brief ramp up to the season where they were trying to get their bodies ready. Then they got almost ready when spring training was going on. Then spring training shut down. They had a few months layoff. And that, again, varies team by team and pitcher by pitcher. If guys were actually conscientious about their training routines over that time and they had some resources available to them as opposed to just sitting around for a few months and then coming back to summer camp and trying to get ready in a few weeks. So Based on all of that, there were concerns coming into the season that there would be more injuries than usual. And thus far, that has kind of played into those expectations. So can't say for sure, but it is entirely possible that it is related to this weird structure, which, you know, you deviate from your routine to this degree and you give guys less time to get ready and build up to full strength. Even if you go a little lighter on them early in the season, you're still going to see certain guys hurt an elbow, hurt a shoulder. And that's what we're seeing, which is a bummer because, again, it's almost like an afterthought with the pandemic going on and all of the infections that were we're worried about. But on top of that, to miss out on seeing some of the pitchers we were really looking forward to is a real shame. Zach, is there a team that you think that your outlook has completely changed on based on on one of these injuries? The injury to Corey Kluber really takes away a big part of the Rangers strength. I didn't think the Rangers were by any means a favorite to make the playoffs, but particularly with the expanded bracket this season, when eight teams from the American League get in, I think there's a pool of five or six teams like the Blue Jays, the White Sox, the Angels, the Rangers, who all have a chance at sneaking into one of those last spots. The Rangers don't have a great offense. They don't have a great bullpen. But what they did have was a really strong five-man starting rotation. Last year, Lance Lynn and Mike Miner were two of the best starters in baseball, but they're three through five starters, I think, combined for an ERA above seven. Over the offseason, they added Kluber. They added Kyle Gibson. They added Jordan Lyles, basically adults in the rotation. But take away Kluber from that group, and now all of a sudden you're losing not just one of those five, but a, pl- a pitcher who had a chance to be, uh, I'll say, the second best of those five out of respect for Lance Lynn on this podcast. Good, I'm glad you said that. I appreciate <laughs> but that. I, I think it not only removes some of their floor, but also removes some of their ceiling. And now that one strength that I thought could propel them to the playoffs has a pretty big hole in it. And you look at it, I, if my answer to that question was going to be the Mets just because Syndergaard didn't get hurt recently. Uh, but Stroman, Syndergaard, DeGrom is as good a one, two, three as you're likely to find. But now it's DeGrom, and then we saw what happened to Rick Porcello the other night. But the Mets have a weird, this is such a weird thing to say about the Rangers versus the Mets, but the Mets actually have a really good lineup and the the Rangers don't. And I I don't know if there's been a a point in baseball history where, where that's been true, where both of those things have been true at the same time. And also we see, all the standings, just because there weren't any sweeps on the on the uh, opening weekend, the standings are just kind of jumbled, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I think the Rangers really do have a, a tough road to hoe. Yeah, and I think you have to talk about the Astros and the impact of the loss of Verlander, too. We're going to talk about the Astros for other reasons in a moment, but losing the reigning Cy Young Award winner potentially for the full year on a team where rotation depth was already a concern. Jose Urquidy is still not with the team, and of course, Garrett Cole departing, and then you're counting on... Older Zach Greinke, Lance McCullers coming off of his injury. 
there's just not a ton of depth there. Now, it's difficult, I think, to imagine the Astros missing the playoffs entirely now that the playoffs have expanded the way that they have. Everything would have to go wrong, I think. But once they get to the playoffs, you're at a point where you look at that team last year and they had the two best pitchers in the league going one, two. And now you might have, you might not have either of those guys and you might be counting on an aging Granky and, and who knows behind him. So I think they're a lot less scary as a playoff team at the moment. So we're going to get to the Astros in a second. I've, we, I just realized that, that we had not planned to talk about Shohei Otani on this, this, uh, episode and uh he had a big weekend he was baseball's first designated runner uh as the angels played the the first um first extra inning game with the the ghost runner on second rule and then uh he appears to have forgotten how to throw strikes and that's not good news even for somebody who is who was able to start opening weekend who wouldn't have been able to do that if opening weekend had been in march he uh, suffice it to say, did not look sharp. And uh, Ben is the ranking Shohei Otani fan. I have to to ask you, what's up? Oh, man, that was a letdown. Yeah, my wife and I cleared our Sunday schedules. We've been anticipating this for years. And he goes out there and he doesn't record an out in his first pitching appearance since September 2018. And the way that he failed to record an out was pretty concerning, I would say. I don't think we all made that much of his struggles with control in spring training because, A, he had struggled in 2018 and then just immediately put that behind him once the season started. And B, you figure the rust and the adrenaline and maybe the control problems that come with returning from Tommy John surgery. You sort of hoped that he would flip the switch and look like his old self, but boy, he did not. <laughs> not only was his control and command not there and he walked a few guys, but also his velocity was down. I think he topped out at 95, but he was throwing fastballs, you know, in the 91 to 93-ish range. And he said he wasn't worried about it and that he just wasn't really letting it eat. And, you know, he didn't throw any splitters. And he said that was more of a situational thing than not being comfortable with it. But you know, I hope that's the case and that he'll come out and look more like his old self next time. But it's a bummer because he only had 10 starts to work with to begin with. And so now one of those is down and the way that he pitched was pretty concerning. Like if his stuff doesn't return, then you're left with the question of, is he still a viable two-way pitcher? I mean, we're, we're a way uh, two-way player. We're a ways away from that still, but oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were really looking forward to this season. It was maybe kind of a make or break year for his two-way experiment. You know, if his stuff was still there, then totally viable. He'll get a chance next year. But if it's not, then there will always be doubts that creep in and questions about whether he should be a full-time hitter. What you end up doing with the extra two hours or so of Sunday <laughs> afternoon you got when he let, when he didn't retire a batter? Yeah, it really uh, freed up our afternoon. I think we watched The Shield instead, which uh. was also good, but not what we had planned. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's, huzzah, a toast to breakfast. So let's go to what is not a recurring segment on the show, but man, I really hope it becomes one. This is a segment we like to call Joe Kelly has the ass. Uh, this is a little bit of recency bias since this was the most interesting thing to happen in baseball the night before we recorded. I got to be honest, this 
Dodgers Astros confrontation last night. I don't want to call it a brawl because everybody came very close to to yelling at each other and shoving, but that's unsafe to do under uh, current circumstances. I this is all I wanted from this season, and I'm glad that if nothing else, we got to see it at least once. Um, Zach, where where do you where do we even start with this? Well, so I actually went to bed early last night, uh, and you. what a thing to wake up to this morning, seeing clips of like Dusty Baker cursing out at least what sounded like the voice of dusty baker cursing out joe kelly on the mound it took me uh, several minutes to figure out what had happened uh, it seems that uh, joe kelly who entered for the dodgers and joe kelly notably was not a dodger when they lost to the astros in the 2017 world series joe kelly was also a member of the red sox when they in- enacted a sign stealing scheme to win the 2018 world series he throws behind alex bregman who takes first base because I think there were already three balls when he threw a fastball behind Bregman's head. Then he strikes out Carlos Correa and then responds by forming what I can only describe as like toddlerish facial expressions. I don't know. What would you call those? I, so there's a, a word that I picked up from English soccer commentary. The word is gurning and that's, that's the best way I can describe what Joe Kelly did. I mean, making faces is the, I guess, a, a less less vivid, less visceral way to put it. But uh, I'm not really sure I've ever seen anything quite like that from a pitcher. <laughs> yeah, the the petulant pout is how I've been thinking about it. That it gave us really like a, a Hall of Fame baseball gif. I mean, it was gift endlessly and immediately. And I think probably for years will be showing up in our Twitter feeds in all kinds of contexts. So for me, I'm glad it happened just for that. And also the silence and the fan-free stands gave us the opportunity to hear, yes, Dusty Baker telling Joe Kelly to what, sit down little motherfucker or something like that, or at least that's certainly what it sounded like. And then we also heard that Kelly was taunting Carlos Correa after he struck him out. Correa was three for four with a homer in that game, by the way. But I think... But it's the one. Joe Kelly got the one. (laughs) Yes, he did. And, you know, Kelly's almost the perfect pitcher to do this because he always has plausible deniability about wildness because he is famously unable to control his pitches at times. And so he can always say, that one got away from me. I don't think that's what happened here. You know, usually we would not condone throwing at anyone and we still wouldn't. Like, I'd rather have had the jawing and the shouting back and forth and the the memed face without actually endangering anyone or throwing a, a pitch near someone's head. That's never great. But I think the the war of words aspect to it, at least, was wonderful. And the benches cleared. And, you know, there are often baseball brawls where everyone just kind of mills around. But in this case, there was even more milling around, probably because of social distancing. It, it would have been a, a very bad look, I think, for baseball in the wake of what happened with the Marlins if these teams had actually thrown hands and fought with each other. So that would have been bad. And I'm kind of glad that... Uh, that wisdom prevailed in that we, situation. We saw Dave Roberts uh, getting out in front of it. I think yes. Yuli Gurriel would have fought somebody. I, something similar <laughs> happened, uh, I think, on Fridays. It was either Friday or Saturday's um, Cubs-Brewers game where we had Christian Yelich showing off his athleticism by hurtling the dugout railing in a single bound after um, uh, after a couple of close inside pitches. And you know, we've we've seen this come to it's interesting because I think baseball players in general model a really unhealthy, stifled emotional uh uh stance. But maybe because of that, maybe there's like an inherent contradiction in this that when they get mad, it's for like very petty reasons, and they get super mad when that happens. And I, you know, I, I'm with you. We don't like the we don't like being ball wars. We don't like anybody being put in in unnecessary danger. But the, you know, the, these confrontations are are a fun thing in in baseball, and uh, I, I love watching them happen because there's just something inherently absurd about about all this, even under normal circumstances. Joe Kelly also uh, earlier this offseason was practicing, I believe, his changeup uh, out in his backyard and had a very large target to throw into and miss it completely and broke his house's window so uh, Hang that's on, wait. joe kelly for you i gotta get a thought off about this because i've been seeing that pass around a lot on twitter with as justification for some of the wilder stuff that happened in kelly's appearance yesterday 
that was fake, right? Can we all admit that the change up and through the window thing was fake for some kind of off-season joke? There's no way he took so much <laughs> off of it, and then he immediately pretended like, oh, no, I broke my own window. Well, Can we the, start that conspiracy theory here? Yeah, I, I it would not. So this is the same guy who I think is his very first introduction to the national baseball consciousness was his national anthem standoff with uh, with Scott Van Slyke during the 2013 playoffs. I think that even wow. predates Joe, Let's Joe Kelly. Let's remember some guys. Yeah, <laughs> Joe Kelly has four plus pitches, I think even came after that. Um, so I, this is definitely a man I could consider doing damage to his own domicile as a bit. Uh, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> if we were going to have a draft of, of such players, maybe we'll do this on, on a future episode. Um, That's money Joe content Kelly's, right there. Don't give away that one. IP. I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I could absolutely see. I don't. That's one of those. Cons- if we want to start it and call it a conspiracy theory, I, I would call it plausible. The broken window is fake. That's just my contribution to today's podcast. You guys can continue now. You're going to edit this too, right? You're going to make other contributions. Okay, he's gone. Well, that's ominous. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of bad omens. Um, okay, uh, speaking of recurring bits, we're going to uh, do something called... Actually, what are we going to call this? I call this playoff odds. <laughs> we never theater. came up with a name. We're going to do... Unna- <laughs> All right. <laughs> so here's a bit. If, uh, you know, here's here's a bit. We don't have a name for it. But one thing we're going to do is, is uh, we're going to treat each week uh, like... Uh, essentially like an NFL week where where we look at teams rising and falling in the playoff odds just based on a couple of games worth of action. So we're going to go to the uh, Fangraphs playoff odds page, pick a couple of the greatest risers and fallers and sort of discuss briefly whether the numbers uh, actually reflect the reality. So the the biggest riser, I believe, was the the Cubs, right? Yeah. So we planned this segment in a a 10-team playoff format era, so we thought there might be a little more urgency when it came to teams actually making or breaking their chances in a given week. And this week, we have not seen a completely full week played because most teams didn't start their season until Friday, and obviously some games have not been played. But we've still seen some significant movement here, even though teams have played four or five games as we record this. That's a pretty significant percentage of the full season. And so the big mover in the positive direction thus far has been the Cubs. Their odds have increased by 16.1 percentage points since the start of the season. And that's the product of their going four and one and the Reds going one and four, perhaps their closest rival in the NL Central and no other NL Central team having a winning record to this point. So as ridiculous as it is to talk about movement after five games, I mean, five games is not enough, I think, to change our opinion of a team in most cases, aside from, say, injuries and absences, which can certainly have a material effect. But, you know, you, anything you're going to see in five games other than confirmation bias is not really going to affect your evaluation of a team. But it still does really move the odds because, again, you know, that's a 12th of a season if they even play the entire season and they've only lost once, their closest rival has only won once and no one else has really made much hay in that division. So I picked the Cubs as my preseason division winner. So I'm buying this, I guess we're, we're kind of going to break down the numbers and then talk about whether we find it persuasive. And because I was already persuaded, I am persuaded that this is real and that the Cubs are in pretty good position. But, you know, I picked the Reds as a wildcard team when there were still only 10 playoff teams. And so this has been a somewhat disturbing start for them. And one fun wrinkle that will permeate this entire season is because of the regional scheduling, so many of the team's games will come against their direct rivals. So it's not just that the Cubs are 4-1, and one, it's that they're 4-1 and one with wins over the Brewers and Reds. So every game can really swing odds. Like I think after the first game of the season, when the Mets beat Atlanta, the Mets division odds jumped by 5%, which is not something you ever see in the, the duration of a normal 162-game season. And that leads directly into the team I want to highlight this week, which is your first place San Diego Padres ahead of the Dodgers San Diego Padres and uh, my World Series pick from the National League. Most importantly, I picked them when it was only a 10 team playoffs and Michael was astounded. He made fun of me on Twitter and it were early, but I think the Padres now, according to Fangraphs, have more than an 80 percent chance of reaching the playoffs. 
That's in part because they won three out of four against Arizona. Uh, and in part because I think they're a very good team. They have a pretty top-heavy lineup, which is a problem, but their pitching staff has the best FIP in the majors. They have a 2.2 ERA. Uh, their bullpen, which I've highlighted a couple times now, is incredible with Drew Pomeranz and even Emilio Pagan and Kirby Yates, who have had blow-ups so far, but form a pretty formidable back end of the bullpen. And most importantly, uh, they have two of the Ringer MLB show favorites in the rotation, Chris Paddock and Garrett Richards, who over the weekend combined for 11 scoreless innings. And guess what? If you have two great pitchers in your rotation who don't allow any runs, you're probably going to be set up pretty well to make the playoffs. So I am buying the San Diego Padres. Ben, you you talked about how, oh, we, you know, we're empiricists and we don't change our minds over five <laughs> games. And I want to say that does yes. not apply to the Padres because <laughs> I was skeptical and I want to believe so much. I, mm-hmm. The Garrett Richards ship has finally come in after years and years of waiting. <laughs> I've been rewarded for my faith, as has Zach, who toyed with putting him. You didn't actually pitch, pick him for NL Cy Young, right? I came really close. Eventually, I went okay. with Jack Flaherty, which is certainly a smarter prediction. But man, did you Justice watch Justice on Richards's, brand for you? Yeah. Did you watch Garrett Richards' first start? He allowed one hit. He was phenomenal against almost Arizona. as good as Lance Lynn, I would say, in, in his first start. I mean, and and this is one of those guys who like with the the Tower Glass now uh, AL Cy Young thing. Like, do I think we're going to get thirty starts out of him? No. Do I think we could get twelve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this is I've I've watched uh, bits and pieces of of the Padres' first few games, and it, it's just Fernando Tatis is making his case for most entertaining player in baseball. Like it's, it's just all of that, like shortstop, the size of a three, four outside linebacker who runs until the base ahead of him is occupied. And there's it just, everything is so all out. And uh, I, you know, he was only healthy for half the season last year, but if the Padres are good this year, this is going to be superstar level stuff for, for Tatis to say nothing of Paddock and Richards and, and Yates and all the Tommy fam and all those other uh, Padres players we like. Also yes. fun to watch this year because of their new uniforms. You know, <laughs> the Brown Padres uniforms, here's what I'll say. The, after they took the yellow off the uniforms in the pitch year, they were without question the worst uniforms in baseball. I think the Brown Padres uniforms are a little little bit of a baseball Twitter hipster thing where we're talking about how cool they are is, a, is like something you say to prove that you're cool to other people. So while wow. I'll say I like them and they're better than what they replaced, let's not, yeah, let's not Last crap our pants over this. Me going after Williams Estadio, and now it's you going after the Padres brown uniforms. We are just <sighs> taking down the sacred idols here. They do look good. They do look <laughs> yeah. good. They just let's you know let's not go overboard. And uh, speaking of going overboard. Uh, let's talk about the Washington Nationals, my pick for the, the National League East, the defending World Series champions who are without the services of Steven Strasburg, who uh, is sort of blase about this season in general, it seems. Uh, they have, so they're the the biggest faller in, in playoff odds so far. But I think there's a little bit of, this is one uh, circumstance in which I think the numbers are lying a little bit. One, they've gone one and four while the Phillies have, have gone one and two and lost two of those three games at home to the Marlins. And I think that's a way bigger deal uh, than losing two or three to the Yankees. And then two to two in a row to the Blue Jays, who if you look at how the Blue Jays and Rays played over the, the weekend, I think the Blue Jays are a lot better than maybe they might have been given credit for. I think this is just a, a situation where Let's just say I'm more optimistic about Washington bouncing back. That's uh, the long and short of it for me. Yeah, I definitely am relative to the second biggest loser in playoff odds, which is the Red Sox. So the Nationals. Oh yeah, let's are, talk are, about this. <laughs> Nationals are down 17 percentage points. The Red Sox are down 16 percentage points. But I think we were all very down on them before the season started, even relative to expectations, which were not particularly high. I think because you know third place team that trades Mookie Betts. I, I don't think anyone had huge expectations after that, and losing Chris Sale to Tommy John surgery. But entering the season with the absence of Eduardo Rodriguez, 
that pitching staff is just sad. I mean, to to see the pitchers that they are running out there, that they have been picking up to hope to run out there. I mean, they would love to have Joe Kelly back right now. It is just a very thin staff right now. So the fact that they are one in four, yeah, that's somewhat concerning. But what's really concerning is just who's on the team right now. It's just not a strong rotation. Yeah, they've just been, I mean, even the Mets have just been absolutely beating them up. And it's it's not just the, the strong rotation. Like, they've been sort of up and down offensively, and you know, they struggle to to get into to Michael Waka. And, uh, you know, it's, I just, I just have a hard time, particularly considering the Rays are playing well, the Blue Jays are playing well. That's, that's a strong, that's a, a big uphill climb, even with 16 teams making the playoffs. Yeah, I think it's pretty revealing that when I was speaking off the cuff earlier about the team's that would be best suited to sneak into the seven and eight spots in the AL. I listed teams like the Blue Jays and White Sox, and the White Sox have not been off to a good start. They have pitching problems of their own, but I could see them turning it around a lot easier than the Red Sox, who, given the state of their rotation, are basically going to be starting every game down two or three to, to zero just because those pitchers, I mean, I think the Red Sox rotation, sure, it's only through five games right now, but they have a cumulative ERA of 7.45. And uh, that's not where you want to be. Well, if they're, you know, they're not going to be competitive this year, they got to trade Jackie Bradley, you know, before they lose him to free agency for nothing. That appears to be the logic for all of their all-star outfielders. So, all right, here's a one team that I am optimistic about uh, towards the end of, from now until the end of the season. And that is this ringer MLB crew. Uh, Thanks fellas for, for joining me. We're coming up on an hour. So I think it's, it's time to, to wrap things up. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Ben and Zach. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Bobby Wagner, who conjures order from chaos. Thanks to Joe Kelly and Shohei Otani for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.